And I think that's super important because I was such a newbie. I was the youngest person there and I've always been the youngest in the room and that's fine. But it's, it's very intimidating in a professional setting and you really are drinking out of a fire hose and it's a fantastic opportunity. Like through conversation, we can learn to ask new questions and receive insight from how people have uniquely crafted their life. Our goal in you listening to these episodes is that you find strategies, tools, and explore a life well-lived for you. Our team here at MG Method works really hard to make these conversations happen. A way that you can contribute to the group is to review, share, and subscribe to the podcast. It helps us continue these conversations. So if you hear something today that moves you in any way, shape, or form, please feel free to share on social or send it to one of your friends and family that you love and you want to grow with. This is a part of the podcast where we get to share with you some of our favorite things with hope that you can bring them into your world. Hugh Kitchen has chocolate bars that we are wild about. They maintain integrity with their ingredients. They avoid gluten, refined sugar, palm oil, dairy, and are certified organic. My favorite flavor is dark chocolate. I'm a simple gal, but there's a huge selection available to you on hughkitchen.com. And if you input the code MGMethod, you get 15% off. So somebody asked me the other day a question on Instagram and, and I thought it was a good one and I wanted to share it with you. They said, how do you know what guests you're going to have on the podcast and how do you decide what you're going to talk about? And so one of the things that we try to do with this podcast is start to pay attention to how we feel. And I read your comments and I pay attention to some of the conversations. And as we were in the pandemic, many of us started to feel you know, deep insecurities about the way that we were showing up in the world and the way that we look and we were spending more time on Zoom. And I started thinking about trying to be really mindful to just audit what am I listening to? What am I reading? What am I watching? What am I paying attention to? And I thought about that, not from the things that make us feel uneasy, but also really starting to pour into the things that make us feel great. And hence the guests that we have on this episode, I started following her account and I really just loved the transparency that she shared with her struggle, you know, and not even struggle, her journey with acne. And that's something that I have really been challenged by. It's something that I know many of you listening have had your own unique experience with uh, your skin and the way that you see yourself in the world. And so making time to be intentional to know that your self-worth is not connected to the experience that you're feeling with what's happening with your body or your skin. And so sometimes I need that reminder and Sasha was that for me. In this episode, we had such a beautiful conversation that's layered and it really shows the depth of who she is as a woman and a person and a friend. She has had an, a unique 
journey through pivoting in many different careers. And and that's something that I I look for in people. I want people that are resourceful, people that are not afraid to learn new information, to seek out um, uncharted territory and new paths. And I think that Sasha does that. She also grew up in an interracial home. And you can hear even in her accent that she is just cultured and she she lives in Toronto and so we talked about many different things we we spoke of you know your career path and learning how to set up boundaries for yourself and how do you navigate working as a freelance creative and also maintaining time to uh, pour into yourself and pour into each other and and really nurture your spirit and your mentality and your body in that process. As you listen to this episode, I hope that you start thinking about the things that keep you curious. I hope that you are able to um, listen to someone who doesn't necessarily have every step figured out, but they are willing to explore those things and they are not defined by external factors, but really trust who they are as a person in the world, as a spirit in the world. And as Sasha will remind us, you know, you're powerful beyond measure. So know whenever you're in the middle of a breakout, an obstacle, um, a challenge in your life, you can return to being a student, being a seeker, and staying curious. Enjoy. My girls, my guys, my group, this is MG Method, the podcast. This is already like such a good starting off spot because my sister who's 18 months younger, her name is Sasha. And so I have like an affinity in my heart, yes. Growing up, did you know anyone else with the name? Because she was always frazzled. All of us actually, besides Sasha and I, had just names that were kind of unique. No. This is a funny story. I always wanted to be named Rachel. (laughs) This had nothing to do with friends. Because I moved to Canada when I was four and I was like, what is the whitest name possible? Because I moved to Canada. And it was it was always Rachel or Sally. I knew no Nobody named Sasha. My parents literally opened up a name book and they were like, we like that one. But now I'm so grateful because there's so many Rachels and there's so many Sallys. And thank God I have a name that's somewhat memorable. <laughs> yeah, you realize that even from such a young age, we, I, my mother is from the UK. So even going to mm-hmm. school, you really want to assimilate. You really want to belong. Yeah. And, you know, we had friends eating certain foods that we weren't eating. And so my mom would always tease and go like, it's so American because we'd say like we want the hamburger helper and she's like what's hamburger helper you know because you just realize over time that your culture where your family's from is unique even your name and your experience and it's something that as we get older and we start to appreciate the uniqueness of who we are it's something that you kind of step into where were you from originally then you said you moved to Canada so where were you born Uh, I'm from Kuala Lumpur Malaysia so I moved when I was really young I moved when I was four but I still have memories and my grandparents my entire mom's side of the family is all there so I go back when I can and it's been I think it's it's been four years this is the longest I've gone without going to Malaysia and I, I miss it dearly so I'm due for a visit once upon
possible. What was your understanding as a child in moving to Canada? Why did your parents want to move there? We're curious so much about like your family life and your upbringing. Why did they want to be there and, and what brought them there? I'm still a little fuzzy on this question, but my dad is from Kansas City. I know I'm from all over. And he moved to Malaysia in the, I want to say late 80s or 90s. And so he had me while he was there with my mother. They, they met. I was born. Yeah. I was the result. And so I think he's always been kind of an expat. And so work brought him all over the place. So work brought us to Canada. We actually were going to move to Jersey at first, but this was 2001. So it was a toss up between Toronto and New Jersey. And I'm not sure how things would go if I lived in Jersey. (laughs) (laughs) It would be a very different Sasha that we're speaking to. Very, very different. I don't know if I would be here. What was kind of your upbringing in your home? What was your, you know, understanding of just like your parents' love and and kind of where you fit into the world with parents that are from such different backgrounds and cultures? I didn't have much of a problem with it because I grew up feeling very unique. I was already named Mm. Sasha, like off the bat. No one else is named (laughs) Sasha. I was the only, there was one Asian kid in my school and my sister and I are half, so we made one Asian person. We never thought much of it. I think our parents, Mm. they brought us up to be very loving accepting kind to everyone that was just kind of the house rule like be nice to everyone and people will be nice back to you and so luckily I never I'm sure I experienced quite a bit of teasing before the age of nine but nothing was really something that stood out for me because I'd always had the sense that I was different and I always Mm. like to rework things and reframe things in my mind as you're different in a good way and then I was nine years old and I went to a performing arts school and everybody was Asian so I (laughs) fit right in I fit right in. But yeah, I'm very fortunate. My parents are very much in love and I love seeing their relationship because they come from two very different upbringings and two very like drastically different cultures. So I've seen the clashes. I've seen the clashes where you see their upbringings kind of, you know, at odds with one another. But the fact that they can compromise and make things work is really inspiring to me. So I've always kind of felt in the middle, never here nor there. And I still kind of feel like that Mm. in life. But in a way, I think that makes me different. Like I'm not quick anymore to give my opinion on things that I haven't taken a lot of time to think about because I see both sides of a lot of things like there's an ongoing duality in my life that I really attribute to my upbringing because I have two halves two two different backgrounds two different cultures two different everything I love this and and I think it's so beautiful that you bring up the point that although there can be you know a difference there's still sometimes that contrast because we think oh well if someone's in love there will be no moment in which that person maybe doesn't understand your experience and that does happen even in in a racial relationship my parents were in an interracial relationship it doesn't mean that there were not really profound teaching moments you know where we had to really trust the experience of people that look different than ours even though we maybe don't personally experience life in that way Mm -hmm. I definitely noticed with my parents as well they held space for that so I love that you were able to see that sometimes there was conflict and even in healthy relationships conflict is a part of that you know it's definitely a space that kind of fosters also the intimacy and love that you've grown to respect what did your parents do for a living? So my dad, still unclear, he never told us what he did. <laughs> this sounds so <laughs> mysterious. He was in 
probably like private equity. And so he was like, it's so boring. You don't even want to know. I don't know much about that world, but I know he did private equity within the renewable energy sector. And that is as much as I asked. Honestly, I ask more questions now because it's also fascinating to me how much work there is in the renewable energy sector that I had no clue about. I'm always like, ah, climate change, everything's happening all at once. And he's like, there's so much innovation going on that we don't even know about. So I'm just, I'm asking more and more questions and he's retired now. So he's like, I'm so out of this that I need to refresh my memory. Yeah, it probably keeps him on his toes as well. So he's probably grateful for it in the fact that you even have the curiosity now. What was your mom doing growing up? She was a full-time 24-7 mother and dance mother at that. So I trained as a ballet and contemporary and jazz dancer for 13 years. And I did that pretty intensively. So I was training for about 25 plus hours a week at my peak. And so was my sisters. My sister was also doing the same thing as me. So we were both being shuttled from school to dance. And we also danced at school. And it was, you know, basically every day, all day. So my mom, and I, in hindsight, I I can't imagine doing this. She literally sacrificed everything for us. She worked prior to having me. She worked in beauty and marketing. I think she worked in fashion as well. But yeah, when she had me, it was it was full-time mom. And I always asked her if she regrets it. And she's like, oh, Mm. I could never go back to work. But that's not to say that motherhood isn't work. What she did, full-time. She brought us like... Yes! Yeah. (laughs) Very undercompensated. I think mothers deserve so much more. If if mothers could get some sort of like stipend or government compensation, this like I think they deserve it. Or at least like a monthly bouquet sent to them by some sort of organization. They deserve so much. She was driving me to dance competitions weekly. They were out of town. We would have to book hotels and it was crazy. She would be sewing costumes, doing my hair, helping me sew my point shoes. All the time someone had the stomach flu at a competition because you're just (laughs) mixing germs together. So yeah, she did that full time, all the time. So much respect for that. There's just so much that goes into, you know, the technical part of that, but then also the just emotional. Like whenever we think about people that grew up in any sort of competitive sport of any kind, any activity, you know, we weren't really talking about emotional well-being as much as we speak of that now, but like learning to harness kind of confidence and navigate emotional regulation so that you can perform. What was your experience in dance and showing up for something as disciplined as kind of dance is. I mean, I'm so glad they started us young because I think I've always been a disciplined child and that might come from my background as well. I'm not sure what parenting is like in North America, but it seems to be quite different from from what (laughs) I... I think my parents were a a lot stricter. We were very, very Mm. focused and very driven kids, my sister and I. Like, we did not have a traditional high school experience in the sense where we were out partying and socializing. Like, we literally went from... We had a two-hour window between dance and school and that was dedicated to homework we were straight a students like high gpa there was no room for failure but it was also never something that I felt pressured by my parents to I was do. Gonna ask. And I always ask what their secret is. I always mm. ask because I'm like, what if I have kids of my own? And I never felt this toxic pressure from you guys for me to succeed. It was almost like if I didn't do as well as I wanted, it was a self-punishment in a way. So they they don't know. And even still, like I, I don't think, if there is one thing I could maybe go back on, I don't think mental health was a big topic of discussion in our household. And that's probably 
probably just because it's kind of the current zeitgeist and it's not really what my parents grew up with. So they were so entirely unfamiliar with it. And now thinking back, I'm like, I definitely had some sort of body dysmorphia in high Mm. school due to ballet. I would cry every time I saw myself in a leotard the minute I started going through puberty. And in university as well, the same thing. I had no idea what was going on. No one told me about it. No one told me what it was. I wasn't educated. So in hindsight, as puberty happens and as you start growing up and becoming, you know, conscious of yourself and conscious of how you look, I think those are things that I went through. But I'm I'm still grateful despite mental health not being at the fore of our home conversations. My parents always spoke with this mentality that you are, you should not always be confident. I don't think I have quite the right words for it, but it's like, you are so powerful, you don't understand mm. your own potential. So they were, Ooh. they believed in us. So no matter wow. what, they were super loving. And I think now they're learning a little bit more about the whole mental health situation. Yeah. It's an ongoing process. I think this is so fascinating because I think that, you know, ultimately once we bring in one, you know, now also that we understand a little bit more about the behaviors and rituals and routines that also encourage health, like movement and being involved in those activities and actually moving through trauma and with trauma is such a powerful tool. So even though it wasn't necessarily the conversation, I think that this idea that parents maybe had for our generation of getting children involved, which helps produce confidence and trust, and you can actually see your progression in something is such a beautiful gift for joy for fostering joy but also like do you think that the idea of or your feelings of body dysmorphia at the time do you think that a lot of that came from external you know was it that you felt that you were comparing yourself to some of the other girls in the class or the expectations of what ballerinas what you thought ballerinas were supposed to look like where do you think that that kind of came from I think it was a mixture of both and it's weird because while dance was sort of a source of my body dysmorphia it was also kind of the cure for it because Mm. I always found meditation and mindfulness through music and dance. Music and dance, they're integrated, sorry. Meditation through movement is what I always say. But yeah, I think it was definitely a combination of both. Like I am not typical ballet dancer. I did not have what they call the feet. So my arches aren't super high. I know people can't see me, but I don't have the highest arches. I don't have the most open and flexible hips. I still stretch every day because I still think somewhere deep down like I'm still able to do all of that but yeah I was comparing myself and from a young age too I was stuck with a lot of the older dancers and I was so grateful for that because it pushed me but these older dancers also had their own issues that I was unfamiliar with and at the age of 11 didn't have the mental tools to navigate so sticking an 11 year old with 16 year olds 16 year olds are going through a whole slew of their own issues and as an 11 year old you're probably not experiencing that for yourself but you're kind of you're not interpreting it in a lens of you know that could potentially be unhealthy that she's doing x y or z you're probably inspired by that person if anything so Mm. I'm only realizing this now but it might have been something worth being cautious about all those years ago yeah and just that group and like who you're spending the time I didn't think of this as well in sport and just the importance of we hear now you know that people are like a cultivation of who they spend the most time with but that also is something that I'm sure is something we can be aware of at even such a young age right because whatever those people are going through it's something that kind of trickles into our psyche and and just our environment I mean I'm just like just recalling a funny story now like a girl who was much older than me showed up to dance class one day and I went home and I was like mom I think this girl got a boob job she just showed up one day 
day. And it was just like a complete transformation. I was like, I really think this happened. I was what, like 11, 12? I had no idea that bras were, I was a little bit of a late bloomer in that way. Yeah. But like, I had no idea that that was something that people really paid attention to or really focused on or really were insecure about. And my mom just kind of laughed it off at the time and was like, no, no, you know, the recovery <laughs> process for that is a lot longer than one day. <laughs> But that was kind of my first exposure to this. Oh, people are, you know, trying to reshape who they mm. are physically in a sense. It was kind of like that for the next few years. And I think that this is so interesting. You bring this up because of the digital space and this thing and, and this idea that, you know, people have tools to, you know, alter in, in any way, shape or form how they feel, how they want to feel, what they look like. And, and that's something that I love about you and, and the kind of the very transparency that I felt having been on your page and you sharing and it just brings me such joy when you know I found your page initially and I was struggling at the time like post birth control with like cystic acne and I was like gosh bless this woman like she's sharing her <laughs> truth so strongly and um, I think that it's important so it seems that you know this has been a core value that you've had since you were young is that you create space for a conversation and communication which makes people ultimately be able to talk about those things and feel safe to kind of explore them this feels like it's been a part of your DNA now that we hear this story. I've actually never thought about it like that. I've always, I feel like I, when I'm put on the spot to give my opinion, I'm like, I draw a blank and I just can't speak about it. But I'm always open to hearing things, Mm. which is maybe what gives me that sense of perspective and honesty. I will be honest and I'm totally fine with people correcting me and learning in that sense. Um, And I've always been very open that way. But oh my goodness, filters on Instagram. Instagram. Can we just can yeah, we just take a minute ahead. for those? <laughs> there, there are a few good ones. Or actually, one of my friends she made a filter that was literally no filter, and I thought that was the most brilliant thing mm, ever. Mm. It's it's no filter. There's nothing. So they're looking for happens. it, and nothing showing up. Yeah, nothing shows up. And this is such an interesting thing because I, you know, I go back and forth with this. I'm so curious how you feel about it. You know, there's a time in my life where I wouldn't come on to share something that was honest or true in my heart. Because because I was struggling with my own acne, my own feelings, self-acceptance or lack thereof. And so I remember when filters came out and I felt like this is a bridge. Like this is my opportunity at the time to feel like it gives me a tool to be able to express without my own sense of frustration. And so it's so funny how taking the time to evaluate things as can you use those as a tool? And at what point does that tool become a detriment? At what point is that tool no longer supporting you? At what time does that tool feel like it's crippling? Because, you know, with anything in moderation of something, you know, It's not the actual thing. It's the thing that we then decide what that thing means, right? So the filter isn't necessarily the issue itself as so much as it like what you make the filter mean about how you look and how you feel and this. And so I'm still kind of exploring that and what sort of way do you as a content creator, and there's so many things we can kind of get into this with you, but how do you navigate the feeling of your own experience and then the experience that you feel maybe at times challenged to have on behalf? 
behalf of other people. Because I feel that, you know, a content creators have become a form of a role model. And so at what point do you learn to navigate your own experience with, okay, now I have to do it this way because I know people are watching? I think maybe because I started so early, I've always kind of, it really makes you think before you do anything, mm. I think, having a very public presence. And I'm, I'm still kind of just thinking about this idea that you just brought up about filters being a potential tool. Like it's not the issue of the filter itself, but it's how it represents you and how it becomes a part of what you're doing. And I guess just because I talk so much about like my skin journey, my body journey, etc., it just doesn't fit with my identity. So if I just feel like I'm using them to, you know, adhere to a certain aesthetic, then I'm just saying it's not, it's not time to post on Instagram today. <laughs> like maybe tomorrow. So it's really just taking a step back. And I think the fact that like we did we both didn't have social media in our childhoods. Like I think Emily got it in university or really started using it in university, I think really helped because that we know when to take a step back. I'm and I'm mm. sorry if I'm speaking for you and if you have a different oh, no, experience. Please. But I, I know when to I like I feel like I have this sense of when to pause, take a step back. Mm. It's not, you know, real life. It is, but it isn't. I have a problem when people say, you know, it's not real life. Social media is fake because I'm I think I'm pretty much the same <laughs> on my Instagram as I am talking to you right now. Oh, this is beautiful that, that you're bringing this up. This is a, a blessing. And I someone asked me the other day, like, what is authenticity? And I, I was really trying to like sit on that. And I kept thinking, oh, goodness, you know, because we hear that word so often. And I'm thinking, okay, when I feel, I think, I say, and I do things that are consistent in alignment, they support each other, there isn't that conflict of things. That's when I feel like something is authentic in my experience. So the fact that you can feel that in this podcast or in the content that you're sharing or the way that your friends or family or loved ones experience you, that there is consistency there, that is such a blessing that you show up in this way and and you start to navigate something that feels, you know, consistent in a way for you. What were you doing, Sasha, before? So I I went Mm -hmm. on Instagram, I asked people to send questions. You're so cute to see the support that you have (laughs) and people sending questions um, before the podcast yes people were sending questions it was so cute it was like we'll get to those questions because I want to share them I thought they were really thoughtful (laughs) and beautiful one of the questions that showed up is what were you doing prior to content creation can you kind of walk us through your career journey so that we know what background you're coming from before you stepped into this space yeah yeah and and to be quite honest content creation is part of what I do but I still do lots of other things so I started out Ooh, I feel like I have to go back to the beginning yeah I studied English literature in university Mm. and I did that because I thought I was going to study economics. I took one microeconomics class and was like no freaking way (laughs) am I spending money and the next four years of my life devoted to game theory or any of that. (laughs) So I decided, I was like, what do I like? What do I do best? I've always been a strong writer. I've loved writing, but I mean like academic paper writing. I'm terrible at creative writing. (laughs) And I've always loved reading. So I was like, okay, English lit, let's do that. Loved it. I absolutely loved it. Despite, you know, all of the classic literature that I deem quite boring that they had me read. I think it just gave me great communication skills. I hope I can communicate with others, but on paper, great communicator. It just also gave me this idea that 
stories give us perspective and I really love that. Mm. And even if, you know, it doesn't come with the same, you know, salary tag as maybe a business degree would have, I'm so grateful that I did this and loved spending my four years at university in a glorified book club. And then after that, I went to, so this was in Montreal. And then post-graduation, I immediately got a job at L'Oreal. And I was very lucky. I think this was due in part to my content creation. I was doing this on and off during school not too seriously it was more of a hobby I would style outfits and it was just kind of something fun for me and then yeah so I worked at L'Oreal I worked at NPR in their skincare division which is where I became obsessed with skincare I didn't even know NPR had a skincare division yes they do Okay, so how did you get this first job? Because I know people are going to ask. So even if you come from the English lit background, how did you get the first? Did the skill set match the requirements that they were asking of the job that you applied for at L'Oreal or NPR? So did they have like an equivalent credibility, I guess you could say, with your background and the specific job position you took there? Yeah, I mean, I was a communications lead. So I was really handling all the communications. And I was like, I can write. I understand content creation. I was an influencer, basically, by the time I had got this job. I understood the industry. What I didn't understand was corporate lifestyle, which was a big Mm. shock to my system. (laughs) And it was a big, big learning curve that I'm so grateful for. So how did I get this job? Um, I knew enough French to live in Montreal because I'd lived there already for four years. And I, you network, like literally that's the way things go. Like during university, I, again, same thing as high school. This is kind of my upbringing translating Mm. into the rest of my life. I did party during university, but I found more of a passion in discovering Montreal, which is where Mm. I went to school. So I met people, I networked like crazy outside of school, not just, you know, like the university networking Ferris, but I used my social media, which I'd already kind of had going like I said to just meet creators there meet people in the industry go to as many dinners say yes to as much as you can and remember the people that you meet so I was pretty good at that and one thing led to another and I met someone at L'Oreal and then near the end of my degree I was like I need to work here When you say network, Sasha, I want to ask you this. Mm-hmm. When you say network, what does that feel like to you? Because I think people hear network and automatically we may assume that it feels like a transactional relationship, right? Like I need to go network. And so you're going out with this intention specifically to network. So can you walk us through what, you know, what were some of the behaviors that you showed up for that actually led to beautiful, colorful, layered, and intimate relationship. I think this kind of circles back to our idea of authenticity because I didn't go to these events being like I'm gonna meet this person today and we're gonna become BFFs and I'm gonna get a sponsored collab and blah blah blah. (laughs) That was never the intention. This is kind I don't know if this is like a good or helpful thing but half of the events that I went to I wanted to go to first and foremost because they would feed me and I was a starving Mm. college student I would go to these events because I could save money on my grocery bill and then use that money to spend on fashion magazines on clothes on Mm. shoes and it's a very like SJP from Sex and the City or it's like I bought Manolo's because I felt they would feed me more or it's like I bought a copy of Vogue that was kind of how I navigated school which is not the healthiest thing but 
but I was also that person who would bring Tupperware and Ziploc bags in my purse. Stop. Every ev- oh, I did. You so did. Every, I did. Every event that I went to, anything that was buffet style, they just throw out the food afterwards. And we can get into food waste, but I have a huge problem with food waste. <laughs> So I would go when no one was looking and I would take food and put it in my little Ziploc bags and take it back home and just it would feed me for days. Bless you. The resourcefulness. I want to tap into Mm -hmm. the resourcefulness of this woman. (laughs) Oh, yeah, we could get into that. But I also didn't answer your question. I'm so sorry. But I think just going into the events with that kind of mindset, like, I'm going to have fun. I'm going to enjoy myself. People gravitate Mm. towards that. And if you can have a conversation and, you know, project that energy to someone else, you're going to have a better discussion that's going to resonate with that other person more than what do you do? Where do you work? What's your Instagram handle? They're going to find you later. Like, don't worry about it. But just, you know, be, I hate saying be yourself, but it's, it's true. If you have something to share that's fun and exciting, it's refreshing. You want to be someone that stands out among people's nine to five, if Mm. you're not working in that sense. Yeah, I love that you're saying this. There's so many things with, you know, you're coming with a serious curiosity, right? Like you're coming with an ability to be present and to be in the moment and actually kind of have fun in that experience. And that is contagious. You know, when when you're around people that show up and they're there, they're in the room, they're not thinking about, like you said, the future moments and what that could mean, but just here in this, in the now, and, and that kind of trickles into the way in which people feel you and the way that they're able to be reminded of like, hey, this is the only thing that matters right now. So this is yeah. so cool that you would do that. And so that led you to then your first job. So you're at yes. NPR and L'Oreal. What did that start to, even especially in PR, what did it start to teach you about people and kind of just a sphere of working in corporate that maybe someone who's listening right now that has not ever had their first job, you could help them understand about working in any sort of kind of space with other people in a corporate capacity. Especially in a corporate capacity, know what you are strong at and Mm. exploit that. I want to say exploit that in like the healthiest sense, like get eight hours of sleep and stuff. But if you're really good at inspiring people at your job channel that I am not the best at numbers I love math don't get me wrong but when you put it in these manipulative data charts and everything my brain goes crazy because I'm like this is taken from I don't know numbers to me in PR especially and even in the content creation world It really doesn't mean that much to me because I personally feel like it takes away from a lot of the artistic work that goes into or like the artistic effort that goes into creating something that I do. So I understand that when it comes to the PR side. However, if you are in a corporate setting, people want to know numbers because that's where Mm -hmm. they're coming from. So it's just understanding other people's perspectives and where they're coming from and not beating yourself up for not immediately having answers is something that I would tell myself now if I was still working in that position and I think that's super important because I was such a newbie I was the youngest person there and I've always been the youngest in the room and that's fine but it's it's very intimidating in a professional setting and you really are drinking out of a fire hose and it's a fantastic opportunity like what a great and exciting challenge how often do you get that in your life and I think that's a good perspective to have on it as challenging as it can be but just you know never lose sight of what you're good at and remember that they hired you for a reason you started then 
diving into skincare? Is this where your interest started kind of guiding you and shaping kind of the next steps in your life? Yeah, honestly. And I didn't realize it because at this time I had never experienced acne in my life. I was just happy to be in the beauty industry because it's so fast paced. There's so much that goes into it. It's probably the most important and biggest industry pertaining to me. So I learned so, so much. And I would always, and I didn't realize this until now, but I bonded a lot with the skincare educators, Mm. which is where I got my sort of knowledge of ingredients that goes into our skincare. I would geek out over everything with them. We would talk about formulations, ingredients that are bad. What is clean beauty? What are the dangers of beauty? And all of that sort of stuff. Like it was really nice. In a corporate setting like L'Oreal, that's just maybe one of the biggest beauty brands in the world. You have everything accessible to you. If you want to talk to a scientist, research and development is downstairs. If you want to speak with, yeah, a skincare educator, you send them a Microsoft Teams message. Like it's so at your fingertips. But then again, you really have to take the onus on yourself and be proactive and put yourself out there in that way to learn more. Yeah, and I like that you're making us think about, you know, for people that are stepping into new work opportunities, you know, who's on the team? You know, this is a question that sometimes that we don't need even think because let's say you know I worked in the beauty space as well but it was a really small team so we didn't have you know the ability there wasn't people in the, I think it was maybe a team of like you know five or six of us so there, there wasn't those departments mm-hmm. there but it makes me start to realize the beauty of being at sometimes a company that has such diversity with regard to employment opportunities because you can learn and maybe the exact position you're in isn't where you stay but it gives you an opportunity to get up close and personal and start to ask questions and see what other areas you're interested in. Exactly. And at the end of the day, like PR just wasn't for me in that space. I think, you know, coming straight out of university, it was very ambitious for them to hire me. I will say that. It was the toughest thing I've ever done because I was juggling so many things. But I learned so much more, I think, in the year that I was there than I did in my glorified book club at university. What were some of the pieces of, did you have any mentors or what? What are some pieces of maybe advice that you specifically remember in experiences or stories that you had while you're there that have really just like left an imprint on your heart that you're like, I, you know, I will never forget this. One was how to make a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> That you bring I up. never had to make one. I always was writing essays. So PowerPoints, I still think are pretty useless to me. <laughs> but I love how you can organize your thoughts mm. with them. So that's something I still use to this day. Other than that, I think this comes with hindsight because it, it's quite a blurred experience for me. But I think learning when to say no is very important. And there were times where because I was, you know, just so keen to do everything, I would mail other people's packages. That's not on my job description. Mm -hmm. I'm not someone's secretary, but I wanted to be on their good side. And I think in hindsight, saying no would have given me a lot more respect in that way. Respect for myself, respect from the other person, and just knowing that. I wish I did that. This idea of boundaries and functioning from a place of, not like in deficit, right? Like you said, it's kind of like the intention, like is the intention at that moment to make that person feel like you're really great at what you do and knowing you have value, like knowing that you being yourself, you Mm -hmm. have value will help you move in a way that is not in a deficit of sorts. And that's hard to do. It's so hard to do. Like you said, this is so so hard when you're new to like I really lost sight of that. And you're balancing this because 
because sometimes, and we're curious about this as well, like sometimes it is in those moments that you've gone above the job description that has left like a lasting impression on people in moments as well too, right? Like, so it's like trying to find that balance between this is a risk that doesn't, you know, end up making me feel resentful. (laughs) I think that's like a good Mm -hmm. cue. (laughs) This is a good cue. That is actually never something I thought about. Like, can we? Can you repeat that? Yeah, can we? (laughs) Can we show up for things that sometimes are beyond what are asked of us, but be cautious of the fact and audit, do we feel resent when we've done those things, you know? Mm -hmm. And like, what is the difference between proactivity and being taken advantage of? Yes, yes. It's hard to know. Yes, and I think that it, it requires reflection because if you're doing, 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 and you're not taking that time, like you said, to take the pause, to think about how does that make you feel? What was my goal in doing such a thing? Was it, you know, an external driving factor or was it an internal thing? Was it that you wanted to feel comfortable that you were creating something and showing up for it? Mm -hmm. Or was it that you wanted your boss to think that you were a gold star girl is what I call it. Like, you know, sometimes I'm still having to navigate like this, like imaginary, like gold star moment where I feel like, okay, Max, like that's not what this is about. And I know so many people listening to the podcast are still trying to figure out how they measure and audit their life. And actually somebody did write in a beautiful question about this. This was kind of a reoccurring Mm -hmm. question that people had for you, which is how do you calibrate your energy in a way that preserves your life and your work balance? How do you, Sasha, personally do that? I feel like this is such a common question, but I've never really given thought to it. I'm really into my calendar on my phone and keeping Mm. an agenda. So I really mark out time for everything. And I think that's so important when you do, you know, five different things. You really have to be strict with your time. And actually going back to this, I think that's the best advice I've ever gotten from someone at L'Oreal was to own your calendar, own your time. If you can, and it sounds so ridiculous, but I book out time for lunch and that's just time for me. And I book out time in the morning to go for my rents. I book out time in my calendar and you'll see it. It's like all on my Outlook or my, yeah, sorry, Google Calendar. But in a way it's kind of empowering. I don't want to say micromanaging my calendar because at the end of the day, it's like, no, sorry, my calendar is marked as busy during that time. So that's my time. Mm. And then you also really learn to appreciate when you don't have anything scheduled. That's your free time. And that's also for you. I even schedule that. Do you schedule that? Yeah, yeah, I was going to ask. Yeah, Yeah, I'll say just Sasha time. Mm. No one can interrupt it. So that's kind of how I balance things. And then you can really see where your hours are going because you need, you're going to have to delegate wisely and it's still a long like an ongoing learning process for me but I found that really helpful and those commitments that you've then scheduled into your calendar those moments arise and I know someone listening is hearing this and goes oh but then a client you know emailed me or a brand reached out to me and they need something last minute how do you then really uh, respect the calendar how do you in those moments you know I'm sure that's taken you time to acquire that sort of skill and really be I don't want to say the word is strict but just respect it yeah I mean you have to take into context what the ask is from the client and when it's being sent because at the end of the day if you are a freelancer the commodity that you are selling is your time and if you're working for yourself there is some element of hustle where you do kind of have to sacrifice a few things and you know if a task is going to take 15 minutes and that changes your hour of personal time to 45 minutes of personal time really own those 45 minutes but you know if it could be a really urgent ask like some of my clients are smaller businesses and I really want to 
to support them and I'm just passionate about that so I don't feel bad about you know taking a little bit of extra time just to get this really last minute important ask done however I will say if it is a Friday night and you're sending me an email at 11 p.m it can wait until (laughs) yeah because you you do you're teaching people also how to treat you right so your response to that behavior is also either going to reinforce what you want or put you in a situation that kind of makes people believe that that's how they can communicate with you and what they can expect when they interact with you so really just making sure that you're conscious of it is is something that I think is really important and you have to think about what's sustainable like are you gonna you know be available at every single hour of the day and burn out in a year or do you want that sort of longevity with whoever wherever you're working I would prefer the longevity personally this is like a reoccurring theme we feel like there's something really beautiful about the guests that come on this podcast specifically where they appreciate the long path and they're willing to mm-hmm. do the things that kind of sometimes in the beginning might feel a little bit inconvenient for the ability to feel honest long term for it to be. So what are things that you do right now that help you create sustainable energy in your life? What are some of the things that you show up for that help you do that? Meal times. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I feel like food is a recurring yeah. theme. Yeah. In this, make meals your own. Like that is for you. Reclaim that for yourself. I'm sorry if this is not answering your question. No, this is. But this is how I recharge. Yeah. Like cooking is so much to me. Cook, like learning how to cook properly, like definitely saved my mental health. Making time for movement is also so important to me. Just having that background as a dancer, I can't not move. Like I'm very bad at sitting still. I've had to work many years on it. But yeah, I love going for runs and and doing Pilates and strength workouts and just feeling strong overall is how I recharge. It's kind of weird in that sense. And make time for sleep. I go to bed at 9.30 do you? and I love it. Yeah. Oh, I do. You get your eight hours. <laughs> you said eight hours. So yeah. I get my eight yeah. hours. Yeah. But I also like to wake up 6 a.m. or before because then that time is also just for me. And if I have that time just for me without any disturbances, no need to comment or, you know, contact anyone, it's just you with yourself doing what you like. So whether that is, you know, going for a really long run or reading a book in the morning. Yes. I used to wake up every week, yes. like in the on the weekends. That was such a treat getting to, yes. like during school, I would read for as long as I could and stay in bed. So getting to do that is super nice or just like going for a walk to get coffee like that's you time yeah so that's how I recharge yeah I saw you put on um I think on Instagram something about running and running is something that I've been stepping into and there's nothing like it in terms of it's a character builder for sure right and so I'm curious oh yeah I'm (laughs) it's a character builder I'm curious how adversity has been a supporting factor. Can you kind of speak a little bit to just how moments that might feel challenging have also fostered some of the more beautiful or or proud moments that you've had in your life? I mean, this really just goes back to the fact that I am a combination of two clashing backgrounds. And so I've never really chosen. I say chosen now because I realize I had a choice, Mm -hmm. but I've never really gone the easy route. That's never appealed 
revealed to me. And I don't think you can grow or progress if you always just take the easy route that doesn't require thinking, that doesn't require or rethinking. I always gravitate towards something that is going to, yeah, I'm going to be adverse towards or just not feel really great about at first. And running for me did not come naturally. (laughs) Like, let me tell you. And I'm not the fastest, Mm. but you're right. There's nothing quite like it. The feeling that you get, the feeling of accomplishment. I would say running is one of the hardest things to do. Yeah, like it is. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. And so the feeling of accomplishing something like that is so rewarding and gratifying. I've always been a higher risk, higher reward type of person. Mm. So just consider it in that sense. If we're if we're talking maybe in financial terms, it's like an investment yeah. <laughs> in yourself in your learning, in your career, in your life, in your health. So if you want a higher reward, you have to go for a higher risk in that sense. And if that means a bigger challenge, then you also have to be mindful and know where maybe to step back. And in order to support that bigger challenge, like where are you going to not comply but or like cut yourself down, but kind of accommodate and compromise. I like what you're saying. There is something that I think when you're facing that what are things right now for you that you would say that you're actively challenged by and that is an obstacle in your life that you're choosing to participate in is there something right now that's like a challenge that you're working on that you might feel comfortable sharing with us that's been you know an obstacle that like a willing you know a willingful Mm -hmm. form of an obstacle (laughs) that's kind of really testing you as a woman and as a person yeah I think two things the most immediate one is I'm trying to run a half marathon and that is very difficult wow difficult than I thought and then too this is kind of weird and ironic and because I love having conversations with people but I am learning how to deal with criticism a little bit better and just learning how to be open about asking for feedback and doing that as often as I can and learning to accept because I, I, you know, I think I take a lot of things personally because I put my heart and soul yeah. into a lot of things. And when people are like, no, that's not how it's going to go. It can feel like a blow at first, but I, it's taken me a lot of, like now I'm working on having the tools to remember, you know, it's not a slight at who you are as a person. (laughs) Just because someone rejects this idea doesn't mean you're a terrible person or that you're rejected by society. I think that's something that I have a struggle with and I'm not really a horoscope person, but I am a Leo and so very proud, very (laughs) confident in that sense. So when someone is like, nah, not feeling it. Like, like, no, she said, nah. I don't know what to yeah. do. <laughs> we should have said, nah, no, that ain't it. Um, this is so funny. That, that, that ain't it. it. <laughs> this is so funny because we wrote this down. And I'm. that was a question that I was so curious about. We were so curious about for yeah. you is, you know, even especially as an artist. And I think sometimes people think, oh, well, you're freelance and you go and you create your art and it's fully accepted. And it's like, no, there's sometimes you're getting feedback from even a brand or it requires collaboration and you are so passionate mm-hmm. about how you see something, how you want that to be received. And then it's like, no, you know, we don't really like that one. And it is, it's like in those moments, right? Our ego does feel like our value is compromised in some way. And so being able to yeah. 
like step back and kind of float over the idea of like, it's okay, Sasha, like you're going to be okay. And I think though, and and this is why we were curious about asking this, because I do think that there is this kind of correlation between people that are able to take that feedback, apply it, and actually actively seek that out. You know, I wouldn't describe Mm -hmm. myself as someone who initially does that. And I, when I see people do that, I'm like, wow, like they really want those answers. But there is something really freeing about being able to get that and observe it and apply it and just hear it, you know. But this is funny that you yeah. specifically brought this up because we were so curious how you do this. <laughs> I mean, even just from an Instagram sense, it's like I'll love a photo and I'll post it. And, you know, I get half the engagement I that I normally do. And I'm like, what do you I love this photo. How dare you scroll past it? So it's just taking a step back. Do not overlook me. Sasha, somebody wanted to ask, and since we're on the Mm -hmm. topic of content creation, one, what do you feel like brands kind of should be doing or you know mm-hmm. what what is something that you're starting to think about it's like really connecting with you and and for people that are small business owners or have a large business they're curious from you what you think what's proper etiquette for brands in terms of creating something that's successful in the space right now I mean recognize that influencers are a little bit more than statistics I think that would be really wonderful. I feel like, yes, numbers are very important and they certainly are within a big brand, but I really respect it when small brands will get in touch and say, you know, I really value your aesthetic and I see the work that you put into your content. Essentially, at the end of the day, when you're working with an influencer, you're associating your brand with someone. It's different from celebrities because it's, you know, might not result in an immediate consumer conversion. You might not get 100 sales right away that's a different type of advertising but I think like getting your brand name associated with a specific person who upholds your values should be at the Mm. core of why you do influencer marketing and I see companies using platforms where we're going to take all their data so that we can see their statistics and get the see the cost per or CPM of the whatever partnership but at the end of the day did the brand like the content that the influencer created and I think if the answer is yes that really answers your question of whether you should work with them again because at the end of the day if you like their content they did the work for you like that was a successful partnership like you like the work they completed the job successfully they maintained your brand aesthetic they upheld your brand aesthetic if anything and yeah I I really think that's that's it like just be more than a number and when for people that may argue you know we have a small business and Mm. so we need those numbers to survive you know we need those sales to survive you know what would you say has been something that also attracted you to working with brands. So when you're looking, one of the things that I think is important is there's specific core values that you stand for. What are some of the things that you look for that companies embody in order for you, Sasha, to personally want to work with them and for them? That is a tricky question because I have never thought about what words come into mind when I associate Mm. the brands that I work with together. But I think they're just something that I would buy from 
myself. Like that, that's really what it comes down to. I love transparency. That's a bonus for me because I understand that clothing manufacturing is very complicated and same with beauty. And it's not, you know, I don't want to just be putting out false information, but at the end of the day, do I like what the brand is putting out? Is the quality good? Mm. And would I buy it? Would I spend my money on this is really important. Somebody wanted to ask if, Sasha, if you were not a content creator, what Mm -hmm. do you think that you would have been doing for work I'd be a movie star. (laughs) Oh, I'm just trying to think because I've never been someone, and I knew this (laughs) from the minute I set foot in a corporate office, that any traditional path was not for me. So I was trying to think of the toughest thing to achieve. And I think <laughs> that being long path. famous is one of them. And I think that there's elements in there that actually that wouldn't surprise me in terms <laughs> of in terms of storytelling and right. you know really embodying the character in the space and the environment and the tone and the energy and like the textures and colors and things of that nature. I want to make sure that we get to the questions that people so beautifully oh, yeah. sp- took time to. Sorry, that was an indirect answer. I honestly can't imagine not doing what I'm doing now. Do you actively look to support small businesses as much as you do the large businesses and I think that this has been something that's coming up it sounds like that is something that you do yes a lot of the work I do is not paid. Like, I just want to work with small brands that I love. You know, the tricky balance is you do have to support yourself and I have to feed myself at the end of the day. So working with companies that have the budget that I do love, like, don't get me wrong. I love the big businesses that I work with. And I love the small ones too. So it's a it's a big balance of that. I love that the work with large brands enables me to support smaller brands as well. So I think that's a really nice symbiotic relationship. There's another question that kind of reminded me of this that Mm -hmm. the space that you're in is still people are curious about that experience so you say you know sometimes you're doing work that you're not getting paid for and there isn't because you're not working with maybe specifically at a company there are moments where you don't know if those partnerships are going to come through so how do you navigate the trust and faith while being a content creator that you will be able to financially be able to support yourself always have six months of rent in the bank that's literally it. Like I think saving where you can is going to be really important. When you are doing those paid partnerships, always sign a contract. Make sure you invest in legal support. That's been the greatest thing that I've done since starting to do this more seriously. So make sure you have help on that end. But yeah, I luckily just because of the industry that I work in, I don't have to shop a lot because I get to try out so many wonderful clothes. And that is such a blessing. Like I could not think of anything else I'd rather do. What a dream. But that also allows me like save where possible. Even if it's mm. just like a few dollars, like stick it in a savings account. You never know if when it's going to be a rainy day because it is such an unpredictable industry. And who knows what's going to happen with social media in the future. Yeah. yeah. And also like maintain your network. Like this is not really a tangible thing to do, but Keep your contacts close. Keep your friends closer. And keep in touch, you know? You never know when someone's going to think of you for something. And be flexible. I love being multifaceted. I love, it's kind of like, I could do ballet contemporary and jazz. I couldn't do hip hop. I wasn't cool enough. But (laughs) I really wasn't. I was so like lanky and just, I had no core control. But just be flexible and be able to adapt. I think that's going to be the greatest thing that will help you prepare for something unexpected. Somebody asked a question here. You, as a free 
freelance artists, people kind of assume that as a content creator, that this idea of being self-made, but that there's also usually a team of people that support you and your business. Can you speak to what some of the potential hires would be for people that you start to, not the specific people, but what type of positions or things do you start to as a creative or a content creator think to hire when you're looking to scale your team? Definitely someone to help with administrative work. So handling emails, you know, maybe highlighting what collaborations or work could be really valuable to you, I think is really good because out of, it's just hard sorting through everything and you only have so much time too, right? Mm -hmm. Hiring a legal consultant or a lawyer, big, like one of the most, like really, really helpful just to read all of the contracts. You don't have time to read 13 page contracts when you're trying Mm. to create. So I think that's really important. I guess with the administrative stuff, that's kind of like an assistant. I haven't hired anyone yet, but that is something I feel like is really helpful. Oh, and an accountant for tax season. Definitely get one of those. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. It's tricky because I'm American and I'm Canadian. So all the taxes, like it's just you're, you're doing both. So mm-hmm. I, and I don't understand it. So having help with that is is really helpful. We're really curious here about our senses. So what mm. is something right now that is your favorite scent? Like a perfume? Or any, it could be or anything. Like any um, <clears throat> yeah, just something that, that I gives always you like, like I love anything that makes me feel like I'm not in cold Toronto. Mm. So I love, like I love like orange blossom, like a floral fruity combination that's really light and fresh and makes me mm. feel like I'm in the Mediterranean. Maybe that is just like given this past year and I haven't yeah. been traveling, but it's just escapist to me. So I love smelling things like that. What's something that you would describe as a taste that's really resonating with you most recently? Oh, anything Asian inspired. I miss Asia. So anything I'm cooking, I want it to be Asian inspired or Polynesian inspired. Like I'm having poke tonight and I cannot oh. wait. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> and you'll make it th- and you'll make it then? Oh yeah, yeah, I make yeah, it. Yeah, yes, yeah. Gorgeous. What is something that you've watched recently that gave you like a visceral experience in terms of inspiration or just something that you were visually really drawn to? Recently, I watched this Cantonese movie called In the Mood for Love. I don't speak Cantonese. I watched it with subtitles. Beautiful movie. Just aesthetically, wow. The dresses in that movie. I grew up like, so my relatives are Cantonese, so we call them, we call the dresses Chung Sams. I can't really pronounce the Mandarin name so I won't even try butcher it but that is the traditional style of dress and I had to go watch all these YouTube videos of the tailors that make these kinds of dresses oh, I and love it's it. just such a craft like it's you just have to google in the mood for love dresses like in just stunning yes yes oh I can't wait we'll pull it up and make sure we put, we'll link it on, on yes. the tutorial what is something that you are just playing on repeat or a sound or music that is just like top of your playlist right now oh I'm listening to a lot of oldies in terms of music so yes I love or like bossa nova that's a total lie mm. I'm listening to a lot of bossa nova lately like I think Stan Getz has a great bossa nova album as well as just like the classic 
jazz artists like Etta James, Ella Fitzgerald, Louis Armstrong. Like mm. I live for that. I blast that all day long. You have such a soulful, timeless style uh, in the way that you have kind of crafted your life. Who would you say for you early in your life to help shape your vision, your taste, the way that you kind of have used your style in your life, whether that was like music or dress or you have such a beautiful aesthetic who who kind of encouraged that for you? Definitely my mom, 100%. I used to steal her clothes all the time. She would notice items disappeared and would find them in my closet, like jewelry, <laughs> handbags. She would save her money to buy like nice designer bags and she had like one Gucci bag with a bamboo handle and one Fendi uh-huh. that was not the Fendi baguette, but it was like this cute slouch bag with a yellow leather handle. Oh my God, I would steal it and I would totally <laughs> ruin it. Like she's had to clean clean it because I used it and I feel so bad but she just has such a timeless style like I look back at old photos and she's like such an epitome of 90s supermodel style and she's a rockin' bod like still does I don't know how old she is she's 30 years old she looks fabulous does not have a wrinkle on her face so (laughs) I think in in some sense that has influenced me just to have style that I can look back on in 30 years from now and it was definitely not always like this like I had like a neon bandeau and tank top phase it was really did you oh Oh, Oh, I did. I was 14. Let's not dwell on it. (laughs) Yeah, I just want to be able to look back on my style and like it. Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) No, I mean, and I love that you give us this moment. You gift us this moment of your constantly reconnecting and learning what is true for you because I think sometimes this like expectation or pressure that we put on ourselves to have that style honed in and figured out and it's constantly a work in progress and kind of taking in new inventory and new inspiration if it's movies that you're watching or music you're listening to and then crafting what you want it to be but like this idea that you know we could go through and you could share with us that there's been moments where you know we would be like what Sasha in that you know it helps us <laughs> oh, feel- I'm sure like even two years ago if you look at my (laughs) outfits I'd be like oh god like what was I wearing but that's kind of the beauty of it style changes well we just thank you so much for some of your time and for letting us know I mean we know that your aesthetic is beautiful but I think more importantly in the conversation we realize that your soul and how you show up in the world is what makes you stunning so thank you for being on the podcast and being part of our group and we just so appreciate learning more about you and we hope to have you back Thanks for having me, Max. I could talk to you all day. You know, this was one of those episodes that I, that I heard things that were warm and thoughtful and made me laugh and made me smile and just reminded me that there is joy in the world and there are people that live in their truth and it's okay for us to lean into that together. And I think that this is why this podcast is one of my favorite things to do is because you are my girls, you're my guys, you're my group. And so we take this journey alongside one another and we can learn from each other. I'll see you next time.